0: Welcome to the NPTO Show podcast. I'm your host Aristotle Domingo, and joining me today is Erica Scarf. She's a member of Team Canada Para team and in 2016 a Paralympic Games finalist. She has burst onto the national scene in 2013, earning her a gold medal in the K1 200 meter at the Canadian Championships, and she's been a finalist at the last four World Championships, topping at the fourth place finish in 2017. Welcome to the show, Erica, and thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's great to have you here. So let's get right on it. So you joined the Canadian national team at a fairly young age.
1: Yeah, so I started paddling when I was about 17 years old, which is pretty late for, um, for my sport. But I quickly was able to advance um, to the national and international level. I went to my first world championships when I was 18 and I went to the Paralympics when I was 19, and I was actually the youngest person in our sport at the 2016 Paralympic Games.
0: Wow, that's quite an accomplishment already in your late teens, and you said you started late, so...
1: Exactly. How did,
0: how did that come about, that you started at 17 in joining the Paralympic sports anyway?
1: Yeah, so growing up, I was a gymnast um, up until age 12, and at 12 was when I lost my leg, and that was to cancer. And after my treatment and everything, I really wanted to get back into sports, but gymnastics wasn't so much of an option for me anymore. I I stayed involved, but not in a competitive uh, capacity. So after my treatment was done, I tried to find a sport that I could excel at and compete in. And I tried a lot of sports. I tried skiing, swimming, biking, but the one that really stuck for me and gave me that same passion as gymnastics was kayaking.
0: Right. So right on from an early age, you're an athlete and always had that athlete mindset, I guess. And I think a lot of us who are athletes have always had that mindset and we always find another way to, if we can't do that one sport anymore, is we find another way to you know, put our energy to, towards. Now you mentioned about losing your leg. Are you a below knee or an above knee? Just maybe explain that to people a little bit. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, so it's going to take a long, a longer answer than a floor above knee. I'm for people listening. I'm not sure if you heard of a rotation, plasty or Venice, mm-hmm. but so basically my cancer was in my knee or just above my knee. So mm-hmm. what they had to do was, um, they made an incision just below my knee and then one just below my hip and that they uh, removed the, the tissue that was cancerous, but mm-hmm. everything below my knee, which includes my calf, my ankle, my foot was still healthy. So they actually saved that and they attached it um, to my upper leg and mm-hmm. they put it on backwards. So that means that now my ankle joint actually acts as my knee joint.
0: Oh wow! Okay, yeah, no, I I am familiar with the Van um, yeah. Ness, but that's that's a great description of it. <laughs> so was it bone cancer or you said it was a tissue? So
1: oh yeah, again, it was it was because. a bone cancer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But what happened? Uh, the name of the cancer is osteosarcoma. But okay. what happened was the way I found out I had cancer. I was at actually at gymnastics practice, and I broke my leg just from running. So and so obviously legs don't usually break that way. So that was sort of right away we knew something was wrong. So it was good because it it let us know that I had cancer because I broke my leg, or else there was no other signs. But it also meant that the cancer sort of spread a little bit around um, the area. So it just um, yeah, so that's why it was. Um, amputation was pretty necessary I did have the option to keep my leg but yeah
0: Mm -hmm. so at 12 though Mm -hmm. I guess with being an active athlete also at 12 you kind of ignore the little signs of you know your your leg being in pain a little because you thought oh you know I was at hard at practice today or I fell on my side so that may have been why you know it's so painful what was that like to then and forgive me if I'm you know Uh, not asking the right question so when you broke your leg was it because it was weak already at that point the bone was getting weak at that point and the cost was a break
1: exactly yeah so like i said it broke just from running so the reason that happened is because the tumor was there and it was weakening the bone and so yeah just can break from the simple force of just running yeah
0: right so how did you take that news at 12 years old? I mean, you're a fairly strong athlete now, but at 12, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so obviously it was, you know, pretty shocking. Right. Especially, you know, for my parents and everything and for them to tell me. But when I first broke my leg, I arrived at the hospital. The doctor didn't even want to give me an x-ray because he's like, oh, there's no way she broke it. She's, she was just running um, so right, right from the start, I you know had to really advocate because I was like, I know there's something wrong. Like, I'm not faking it. I'm an athlete. I'm, I'm tough. I'm strong. But there's something wrong here. So we did advocate to get a, the x-ray. And initially, I'm just thinking, okay, a broken bone, eight weeks, and I'll be back to gymnastics. But on that x-ray, it actually showed a pretty big mass, which we didn't know what it was at the time. And then obviously with further testing and stuff, we did find out it was cancer. And yeah, it was really hard for me at first. But looking back on my 12-year-old self, I'm pretty proud of the way, you know, I accepted it and just kind of moved forward with what I had to do. And um, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I mean, 12. And then within five years time, you're competing at the world stage after you had the surgery and recovery, obviously with physiotherapy and all of that, yeah. and then deciding that you can have the Van Ness. What was that like for you as an athlete after recovery and going, I'm going to do this?
1: Well, initially my, my recovery was quite slow because when I got my leg amputated, I was still in treatment. So chemo. And so my, my scar didn't heal for a very long time. I didn't my prosthetic for a long time and it probably wasn't, Almost a year until I was walking, over a year without to be walking without um, any canes or anything. So mm-hmm. I think during that time I swam a lot, and I was I just was sort of enjoying it. Just anything but being in the hospital was great for me. Right. Um, but then I realized I really missed just pushing myself and learning new skills um, as a gymnast. And even though, yes, at 12, you're young as an athlete, but in your gymnastics career, you're actually quite, you know, advanced. Like, your peak's around 16 years old. So um, I sort of already had the mentality of pushing hard and competing because and, I was pretty close to my peak as a gymnast. So now um, as a kayaker, yeah, I'm just kind of – it's great because um, – Most kayakers peak around their late 20s. Mm -hmm. So it kind of gives me another chance too, just in terms of my age, not only my disability.
0: Right. No, I listen to you. I'm just mind blown Mm -hmm. of how I know gymnasts start fairly young. I mean, you guys started like five years old.
1: Exactly. And
0: always been amazed at how, you know, and what you do on the floor, on the balance beams and all that. And you're right. Once you have that mindset and once you have that motivation in you as an athlete, you will keep going. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, I think that's just the drive in all of us naturally to, mm-hmm. to compete also for me, it was the competing. Yeah. Right. And yeah, it's, too. it's, it's that chase. Right. So it's, you know, it's like, well, I don't know what to compete in, but I know I have to get my body somehow ready
1: exactly. to compete. Yeah. Right? And the competitiveness, I don't know about you, but it totally transfers way outside of sport. Yes. And sometimes it's uh, it's to my detriment. I'll be, <laughs> Super competitive about like cards, or you know, just I, yeah. I think we're all. Really every, I
0: know. It, I think it's, <laughs> it's in all of us that way. But yeah. um, so let's get into pair So, did you? How did you go about finding that sport? Did you look at clubs, or were you sort of into sailing already as a kid and thought um, I saw this at a at an event and I think it's something I want to try?
1: Yeah. So I actually sort of stumbled upon it. I had a friend, uh, his name's Phil and he recommended it to me a few times. He also has the Venice and mm-hmm. I was thinking to myself, I'm like kayaking. I didn't know too much about the sport. It just seemed like something people do to relax at their cottage. And I was thinking like, you know, I actually want to do a real sport. <laughs> so at that point I, I, sort of like turned down his, uh, invitations to come. But one day I was getting, um, a prosthetic fitted and mm-hmm. he was at the clinic and he actually went with his coach, um, who became my coach. But she sort of told me about the sport a lot more and how it is competitive. It is a real sport because as a as a kid, I never I never heard of it. So she said, just come out one time and try it out. And it was actually very far from my house. I live in Mississauga. It was down in uh, Toronto. So my mom said, okay, I'll drive you down once and because I was, you know, really bothering her about it. Um, and yeah, ever since then, I just was hooked uh, because it was really like a freeing feeling because in the boat, like you're the exact same as everybody else. And I could focus on the the parts of my body that were still intact, like my arms and my core and my other leg. So I, yeah, I really enjoyed that.
0: And then what was training like? Because we have winters here and... Mm-hmm you can not have access to the, to the beach or to the water all year round?
1: Yeah. So probably my first year, I, I would just sort of train the summer and then just revisit it the next summer. But Mm -hmm. after that, I really wanted to go like full force into it. So we, for our winter training, we have ERGs, which are like kayak machines off the water. We do a Mm -hmm. lot of weights and just different sort of cardio CrossFit but on top of that, we also go down to Florida. So my first year, I probably just went for like two weeks. But this year, I spent um, probably around three months there. And it would have been more, but we got sent back because of COVID.
0: Right. Are there different categories with Para Canoe in yeah. what competitions and what levels you can compete in?
1: Yeah. So we have three classifications. Um, so it would start with KL one, then KL2 KL three. I would be considered a KL three. So the KL three classification includes things with a simple as drop foot or cl- uh, club foot, but it also includes single leg amputees and you know a variety of disabilities, but usually um, the well, upper
0: in- extremity is is fully intact, if you will, yeah, or fully including functional. The,
1: the core. And then moving down to the KL2 classification, this would include people with sort of lower spinal cord injuries or double amputees, but above the knee. Um, And then moving down to the KL1, it's higher spinal cord injuries. So these athletes usually don't have too much use of their core and it's really all um, arms and shoulders. Wow. Yeah. That keeps it a lot, you know, a lot more fair So you're competing against people who have, you know, similar abilities. Um, There's also a a va'a. So that's, I do the kayak, which is like a double-bladed paddle.
0: Um,
1: And then the va'a, similar classifications, it's slightly different, but they use a single blade, so they paddle on one side. So it's more like a canoe.
0: And do you only compete with one boat? You talked about two different boats there. So do you only compete in one event of a boat? Or do you, can you switch back and forth between this event, I'm going to do 100 and 200 or whatever the levels are. And then on this boat, I compete in all the, the distances.
1: So internationally, our, our sport only has one distance, which is 200 meters. So it's a, okay. it's a real sprint. A lot of athletes do both the va'a and the kayak. I personally have such a hard time steering and staying on one side and I just love the kayak so much. So that's what I focus on. But some of the best in the world are the best at both, which is amazing.
0: Right, right. Um, so going back to the Florida question, I wanted to talk about earlier. Yeah. So you were endorsed to go to Florida before the Tokyo announcement.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Right. I think I saw your name on that nominations list to go to to, to go to Florida. So what was that like? When you know you're going to Florida. And then COVID happened. Were you already in Florida? Cause I know sometimes you guys travel by car to bring your boats with you mm. and all of that. I don't know what years is, you know, maybe you have a boat in Florida already. So what was that like looking forward to that camp? And then finding out later in March, I think, or early April when mm-hmm. we found out Tokyo was postponed. So take me through that whole process yeah. for you as an athlete, going to into training into a camp for Tokyo. And then all of a sudden, Tokyo is postponed.
1: Yeah. So this year, I sort of put everything else in my life on hold. Like uh, I'm a university student, but I put that on hold. Uh, I spent a lot of time in the fall in Montreal, and then going down to Florida even as early as October. So I spent quite a f- uh, quite a long time there, just really coming home for Christmas and going back straight to Florida. And so I wasn't. I was there when. The prime minister made an announcement of for Canadians abroad, if to come back, if you're abroad, yeah, you need to come back. And that was, I believe, March 15th. Right. So our team sort of discussed different possibilities if th- th- we had a higher risk of contracting it if we traveled, or if we should just stay put. But by the 17th, we decided to leave, and then I was gone on the 18th. So. Even at that point, though, we still didn't know the games were canceled. Mm-hmm. So now we're we're a little bit worried because we've put in all this work. We're really close to our qualification race, and we're not training. So you know, we're worried about you know different parts of the world getting ahead of us, and of course, all at the same time, we're trying to not be selfish and obviously understand that it's a you know global pandemic. So right. we should just you know stay isolated and stay put so anyways that was a stressful period for me especially just because I thought I still had to compete but I wasn't able to train and I knew I already put all these months of work in and on the last stretch I just you know couldn't do anything so Mm -hmm. to me at that point obviously it was a little bit upsetting but it was a bit of a relief too when we found out it was canceled
0: hmm So then how do you keep yourself motivated? What's next, I guess, in terms of competing? I know likely there's not gonna be any competition this year, mm-hmm. but twenty twenty one is also just around the corner now.
1: Yeah. So for me, I've been doing kayaking for about seven years. So in a way, this I kind of took an advantage of it and used it as a bit of a break and a reset because I love my sport, but when you do it so long every day, you sort of lose the appreciation for it. So having some time away mentally was, it was really helpful. And I just sort of got back into it slowly. Like I still stayed active while I was at home doing a little bit of weights and stuff. And now I'm back on the water. I used to train twice a day, which, um, yeah, I, I will start doing soon. But as I like slowly got back into it, I just went once a day, sort of focused on the parts of it that I enjoy, like the social aspect and mm-hmm. just being outdoors and stuff. So right now, that's where I'm at. And then going forward, obviously, we're going to start pushing a lot harder soon and going to training camps. Um, but yeah, I also was dealing with a lot of uh, pain in my leg recently. Mm-hmm. So that sort of impacted my ability to train and that's sort of why I've been taking it easy. Right. Um, so I've all healed up now. So yeah, I'm just sort of going to gear up again for next year. Yeah. So exactly. I think
0: a good mental break like that is really helpful for us, I think too.
1: Yeah. And you know, as an, as a younger athlete, I would get like really severe pains, but I would still keep training. And I think just getting older, with getting a little bit more mature, you realize that like taking two weeks off now is totally worth it. Absolutely, versus yeah. you know just having this drag on for months, and then you're not comfortable, and yeah, you don't enjoy your sport at that point.
0: No, I I I hear that, so <laughs> I, I'm absolutely yep. Take a break. We'll be right. You know, we'll we'll be right back on there when yeah, when everything exactly. is all good. Now going back to canoe, then did you have to modify your canoe or because you, you have one good leg or a sound yeah. leg on the other side? Yeah. And, and describe this for me. So your canoe would have the footrests on it that you kind of brace yourself with. Did yeah. you have to modify your canoe? To-
1: yeah, so for my first few years of paddling, I just had a, like a water leg, so waterproof prosthetic. And I would oh, wear that. So you do you wear your
0: prosthetic on as well?
1: Yeah. So yeah, um, I did that. And then to like, what, as it got better, I, I did a little bit of modification to my boat. So now essentially my prosthetic is attached to my boat. So onto the footboard and that, well, there's like two, two parts to it. So one, it's great because that counts as my boat weight. So now I don't mm-hmm. have to add additional weight to my boat, which, uh, yeah, you know, it helps me go faster. Mm-hmm. And on top of that too, it just gives me more leverage and it's more comfortable.
0: Right. So you just, you sit on the boat and mm-hmm. then you put your prosthetic that's already in the boat, that's attached part of the boat and you attach yourself to that. Yeah. And then you, okay, wow, that that makes a lot more sense. Again, yeah. as a bilateral, when I was doing this, I was using pool noodles to fill yeah the sides did (laughs) you have to do anything like that Um, because i had to paddle with my core only yeah Because as a double amp i have nothing to brace myself with on the boat yeah so you fill it with pool noodles to hopefully brace you somehow and then battle with your upper body
1: yeah so like obviously starting out at first when you're figuring it out we sort of macgyver a lot of different things pool noodles like i've i don't know i've seen a whole whole bunch of different things just like lots of velcro and even yoga blocks but you know after that if you decide to pursue it it's it's worth you know getting something and they can do a lot to help you feel secure in the boat but also uh important thing too is that we're able to pop out of the boat if we do tip yes so that was always my fear of you know getting stuck in the boat but we do we practice a lot of um tipping just to make sure we can Right. Yeah.
0: So yeah. your prosthetic goes on your foot part, and then you have a knee brace that, bakes, that supports that knee joint, air quotes, yes. knee joint. Yeah. So when you're in your boat, do you still have the same strap that holds onto your thighs? Or so yeah. how do you get out quickly?
1: So basically, I have my socket, which is, a, you know, it goes around my, my backwards foot, so like my yeah. knee, yeah. and it attaches to my calf. Yeah, and, and that's actually separate from the piece that's in the boat. So that will just um, slide right into um, sort of like an opposite piece in the boat. So like that's the hollow piece. And then my leg will slide into that. And it has a strap, so it's tight enough to stay if I'm paddling. But if I tip, it's also loose enough that um, with like a little bit of wiggling, I can come out.
0: Right. Quickly, yeah. Wow, that's that's awesome. The adaptations that you guys make to your boats. Yeah. Again, you know, it's it's been an eye-opening one for me. Uh, talking with paracanoers and paracayakers when they talk about their boats. So that's again, I the only one I know is pool noodles around me <laughs> to hold on to myself with because I don't wear my prosthetics in oh, the yeah. boat. So yeah. it, it weighs 20 pounds each, I think, in my mind. So right off the bat. And if I flip over and the prosthetics fall into the water, then there goes $20,000 into the water. So it's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to just put pool noodles around me and and hopefully I can stay in there that way. Right? There's no
1: way to attach um, your your water legs uh, securely or you don't trust it
0: i i don't trust it uh maybe like to your point if i'm gonna do this competitively and more seriously that i will have my own boat modified for me then i'll probably do that but right now it's just for more for fun at this point and kayaking with friends so i'm not really looking to invest in a full modification of a boat
1: yeah Um, it can add up really easily. yes
0: absolutely now did your prosthetist work with you and your coach on that or this is just from experience with the, the pair team knowing what to do with boats?
1: Well, that's a funny question because I was, I was like one of the first people to really sort of compete internationally in para canoe within Canada. So in a way, a little bit of a Guinea pig and not a lot of things were in place. Mm-hmm. So I, I struggled for a long time with finding a modification or, you know, with getting help with that. Mm -hmm. But once we sort of got the ball rolling, it happened pretty quickly. I went, I go to prosthetic energy and they were great. So I had my coach come in. We, we brought the boat into the clinic just so they could like have a visual of how to best set it up. And, um, yeah, so from there, we just obviously addressed like the safety things about tipping and needing to come out. So that's where we came up with having the socket separate from the rest of the limb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was a lot of collaboration with the prosthetist, my coach, and uh, the team physio actually also helped out.
0: Oh, wow. that's That's great to hear. You mm-hmm. know, like I said, again, talking with fellow athletes, it's just you're finding out all these things and opening up really my mind also to the sports you guys do and to find out that this is what you guys do for, to compete at that level is mind blowing to me and, and all the things that's possible really for all of us to participate in these activities. So Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. It's great that we can overcome those barriers, but I guess the the little bit of downside to that too is just the financial side. It's very <laughs> expensive.
0: Yeah. It's the cost for us, isn't it? That, that just.
1: Yeah. In addition to training. Yeah. I mean. There's a lot of resources up there like to support financially. Mm. But yeah, that, that is the one downside to it. It is. It is an athlete is expensive. And then being a para athlete is, you know, 10 times. He's even
0: expensive. more. I know. And um, it, we were actually talking about it last night at, at practice about how we had to scramble almost Mm -hmm. in every funding opportunity we can find and apply to, to just get funding for training and for equipment and for sports and what we could spend that money on and what, you know, implements can we spend that money on was, you know, is limited really in in our sports, right? so
1: Yeah, and it's a catch-22 because once you start showing results, Sport Canada is more interested in funding you, but in order to get those results, you, you need that funding, so... It's
0: a it's a double edged sword. Yeah, I've often, I've often um, advocated for that. I said, you know, to get in, you need to train and spend money on equipment and all, mm-hmm. all that. Yeah. But then, if you don't meddle or if you don't, at the, you don't reach that level, you don't get any support. So then, how do you train to get to that level?
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah.
0: So, it's, um, yeah, it's, but a that's, it's a weird one. But talking about you pioneering, literally the pair canoe earlier when you were talking about modifying your boat and finding out ways to do that. Now people after you will know how to modif- modify their boat and how to be able to compete this way at that level. So there's got to be some some kind of you know joy that comes from that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you. I think it's, it's great because I see a lot of new athletes coming into the sport and obviously they're still working hard, training hard, but the obstacles with things like you know funding and equipment they don't have to struggle so much with it and Mm -hmm. um it's really great to see uh you know i wish it was like that for me when i started but like obviously someone had to sort of clear the path i guess so to speak yeah
0: i know that's that's i think that's really good where do you think the sport is going with with kids seeing you now and what you've accomplished do you see a lot of fun of I don't want to say funnel kids but yeah. do you see an, an uptake of athletes going into your sport
1: yeah there's a lot more so I guess um I'll just correct a little bit when you're saying I was pioneering the sport there's actually another lady I want to mention her name's uh, Christine mm-hmm. Gauthier she was in the sport before me and she, ex- uh, she did really well. She was in the sport since it started um, back in, I believe, 2008. Mm-hmm. And so she did a lot of work and advocacy, and that helped me, and then I sort of continued that. But, yeah, so now going forward, I see a lot more athletes. There's the Paralympian Search which Mm -hmm. is a great program. And uh, we've been able to pull uh, a lot of athletes from there, Mm -hmm. including Andrea Nelson, who qualified for the Paralympics already. And I just see a lot more clubs also taking in, uh, starting a para program and being more open and accepting to the idea of having para athletes. And I, I think in a way it can be a little bit intimidating Mm-hmm. to you know you don't know how to best support them you don't want to do something wrong but i think that that's the bigger mistake of not wanting to do anything wrong like it's okay to make a mistake with you know running a pair program and you'll learn from it but i think the the bigger mistake is just not running one
0: of course no absolutely i um i totally agree i yeah. do a lot of ambassadorship. Mm -hmm. Um, showing people sports and how to do para-sports. So I think just bringing those awareness and showing people what they can do with para-sport, I think is a great opening really to anybody watching saying, I can do that too. And I can participate in this sport, this adapted way. So I think what you guys are doing is really good.
1: Thank you. Yeah. I, I think the, yeah, the biggest barrier is not like, financial or like even accessibility the for me Mm -hmm. i think the biggest barrier is just awareness of opportunities yeah because a lot you know everything else can be overcome but if you don't know that there's disabled people that kayak or there's you can still play volleyball just sitting down or you can play hockey but in a sledge and a lot of people actually don't know that even within the disabled community which i think is unfortunate but Yeah, there's a lot of great people out there trying to raise awareness and pull people in.
0: So what do you think clubs should do? Or do you think it should start from schools and playing on an inclusive or allowing inclusive sports to be played in schools, whether you're able-bodied or um, a person with a disability or differently abled? Right. I think it should start from within a regular school and just talking about inclusion in sports. And then if the person is interested in in more of that, there should be clubs readily available to offer that sport. Where do you think we should be doing or where do you think we should focus our energy on a little bit more in spreading that awareness?
1: Definitely in schools, I think it's a great point that able-bodied people can play adapted or para sports and there's no reason why they, they shouldn't. So. And that means that everyone can, you know, play together and it's really, truly inclusive. So, yeah, just like maybe doing sitting volleyball in school. That's something really easy, doesn't require any equipment. And you can expose children to the idea of disability and in parasport. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that would be awesome. I also do think, too, um, going into the rehab centers or the hospitals and... Obviously, at that point, people might not be thinking about sports. They're just thinking about, you know, surviving. But just kind of planting that seed and just letting them know when they are ready, this exists. And I think that could offer a lot of hope for people.
0: Right. Speaking of advocacy, you speak a lot about the the Terry Fox and the Marathon of Hope Foundation Mm -hmm. and his message. What is it about the, the Terry Fox Foundation that resonates with you? Personally,
1: uh, me and Terry Fox had the same cancer. Mm-hmm. And even growing up, before I had cancer, obviously at school, we do the Terry Fox run. I was always so impressed and so fascinated by him, like a true Canadian hero. Yeah. And then when I was diagnosed with the same cancer as him, it was great to sort of know that s- someone who's had this cancer that I already knew about him and he already did great things. Of course, it was hard to know that he passed away and didn't survive, but mm-hmm. even knowing that it was really inspiring. And another thing is knowing his outcome. Uh, I don't know how exactly how many years ago it was. I want to say 40 years ago.
0: Yeah. 44 years ago.
1: 44 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. The advancements that have come about since then. There's still like a, a huge way to go. The survival rates still are only eighty percent, which sounds good, but you have to think that, that also means one in five children are still dying. So there is a lot of advancements, and I've benefited directly, you know, from his marathon of hope and all the money that has been raised. So, yeah, just the really similarness in the story between me and Terry Fox um, is, yeah, why I chose to sort of speak with this foundation.
0: I know you're in your early 20s, but you have yeah. this mind of, again, this mindset of, of goals and achieving stuff already. And it's such an honor to speak with you today. Oh, What's you. next for you?
1: So right now I'm finishing my, my degree in kinesiology. So oh, awesome. Yeah, so kinesiology is obviously a lot related to my sport, but also my recovery and rehab. And I'm not exactly sure what I want to do with that, but definitely just something to help the disabled community um, in some capacity. But I have a few ideas, but I'm not sure, sure yet. Okay. And on the in terms of sport, just continue training and pushing towards uh, Tokyo 2021, hopefully. Yeah, just recently, I've just been able to sort of see sport a little differently, and I feel like I'm making the most of it now rather than just constantly grinding towards a performance because that's it's our goal. But at the end of the day, it's one very small part. It's it's like one minute compared to years of work, right? So
0: right, you're still very young. You still have a lot of years left in you to. compete some more after even Tokyo 2021 there's I believe Paris is the next right Right, so you still have all of that improve further even I mean you already have a resume as it is Mm -hmm. I I think it's just we're just gonna wait for you on the podium next you know the next time around so I think that's great I wanted to thank Erica for spending some time with us today and sharing her story we will all be looking forward to seeing you like I said back competing and representing Canada in the Olympics where can they find you online
1: so on instagram and twitter i'm at scarf with two f's erica so s-c-a-r-f-f-e-r-i-c-a on instagram and twitter um but those are the only two things i have right now hey
0: that's 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 (laughs) great i will post those um social media links on my website www.aristyle.com so you can find erica again thank you for tuning in everybody if you have any comments or podcast ideas Please connect with me on Facebook and Instagram at The MPTO Show. Until next time, I'm your host, Aristotle Domingo, and this has been The MPTO Show.